Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Andy Shalal, who is an Iraqi-American artist, activist, and entrepreneur. He's best known as the founder and CEO of Busboy and Poets, which is a Washington, D.C. well-known restaurant establishment. He's also a local philanthropist. Andy is also known for hiring artists in the D.C. area to paint murals around the city, to brighten up the streets, and to make people smile. Specifically, Busboy and Poets is a community where racial and cultural connections are consciously uplifted. It's a place to take a deliberate pause and feed your mind, body, and soul. It's a space for art, culture, and politics to intentionally collide. Through creating such a space, Andy hopes to inspire social change and begin to transform the Washington, D.C. community and the world. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, Andy takes us on the journey of how Buspoint Poets came to be and discusses the importance of creative expression, especially in times like these. We also discuss Andy's time running for mayor of Washington, D.C. in an effort to seriously address the systematic issues of racism, health care, and education. Finally, we discuss the current political and cultural climate and get Andy's take on the best way forward. We hope this episode inspires you to consider how you can create change in your local community, especially as a matter of voting. Just remember that all politics are local, so if you haven't already, please register to vote. Please do so while you have time. So, without further ado, I bring you Andy Shalal. Andy Shalal, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you very much. Well, it's good to have you here, Andy. The way I like to kind of start my conversations is by asking a simple yet what can be perceived as a difficult question. In your own words, how would you define who you are? I am a convener. I am a restaurateur. I am someone that gathers people. I'm an activist. I'm an artist. I many different things. That's great. Now, Andy, would you kindly share how your family came to America and what the circumstances were for you to arrive to Washington, D.C.? Well, my family moved here in 1966. My father was representing the Arab League at that time. The Arab League is an organization that uh, was a pan-Arabist organization that was led by Egypt and Nasser at that time. My father received the post to be the representative here in Washington, D.C., and that's what brought us to America. And then we decided to stay here. And how old were you? I was 10 years old. It was 1966. So I think it'd be really great at this point to kind of talk about how you became the CEO and founder of Busboy and Poets, which is a very well-known, prominent restaurant chain here in Washington, D.C., which is a meeting place for people not only to break bread together, but to allow artists, activists, poets, filmmakers, writers to talk about the most interesting topics of our time. So... Could you talk about how you got your foot in the door in terms of the restaurant industry and how it all kind of came to be? Well, it was kind of a an odd way that I got into the restaurant business. I was actually a medical immunologist working at the NIH, trying to figure out to maybe move into a medical career, become a doctor. And then on my way to being a doctor, I decided this wasn't really for me and decided to find a different uh, course of career. And to allow me a little more time and to get some pocket money, I started working as a waiter. 
and enjoyed it immensely and decided maybe this is something I could do for more than just a temporary situation and decided to pursue it further and, uh, you know, moved in that direction. That's interesting. What was the thing that you found to be most compelling about the restaurant industry that attracted you to it in the first place? Well, I loved service. I really enjoyed it tremendously. I knew that my orientation was going to be in that field somehow. Once I started serving tables and understood this was really where I got joy. I got joy out of serving people. I got joy out of seeing people smile. I got joy out of hearing their stories or planning their special occasion and making it even more special. Having a customer come and tell you that they're going to be announcing an engagement today and for me to hide the ring inside a cake and let them see it once their spouse you know, starts to eat it and so on. All these things were so thrilling to me, I have to admit, that I enjoyed it. I just enjoyed providing joy for others. Yeah, that's really interesting. I can empathize with that, actually. So I'm curious to know, as it pertains to your family, how did your parents, and particularly your father, kind of perceive this decision to go in the restaurant industry? I mean, it's a very different direction than the medical path. How did that all kind of land with them? Well, I think, yes, I think my parents would much prefer me to be a doctor. They were disappointed in the fact that I decided not to pursue that career. They were, you know, for a while, I did not tell them that I was interested in this as a career. I just kept it to myself. But um, knowing all along, that was the direction I was heading in. It took many, many years. I think, I don't think uh, either one of them <laughs> still till today thinks that I'm actually a restaurateur. They, they think I'm almost a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. So let's unpack this idea of busboy and poets. How did you come up with the concept? How did it all kind of take shape? How did it manifest? And then how did it all unfold as it came to be? Well, once I got into the restaurant business, I recognized the power of food, the power of food to convene, to bring people together. People from different walks of life that otherwise may never intersect with one another suddenly find an excuse to be sitting across from one another, same table, same room, whatever. That power is really something that we, I thought, had not been used as well as it could be. And the idea that a lot of people, you know, a lot of differences, the way we perceive one another, the way we interact with one another, really stem from ignorance and not knowing the other person that's sitting across from us. And to provide an opportunity for that intersection to take place was something that I always thought was something really special to do. So I, I wanted the idea of creating a space where it was intentionally for that purpose. It wasn't just accidentally a restaurant where accidentally people are going to walk in, accidentally people are going to experience this, but it was really intentionally made for that purpose where people can come in and sit down across from one another and be able to experience this. Yeah, and what's really fascinating about Busboy and Poets is that it has this artistic pull to it. So I'm curious to know how you would kind of describe the formation of this creation and in, in its essence. How did it kind of come to be? Well, when you open a place and you want to bring in all these elements in there, you have to consider what makes those elements stand out, you know? So I wanted a place where people from different backgrounds, have, you know, racial and cultural connections are uplifted. I wanted a place where art, culture, and politics come together and intentionally collide. I wanted a place where people can come and take that deliberate pause and be able to sit down and relax and be able to enjoy themselves and feel comfortable writing the next great American novel. You know what I mean? I, I didn't want a place that was hurried. 
And so to create such a space, you've got to have all these elements. And so I made sure that the art on the walls represented that, the music represented that, the space represented that, the seating, the food, the stage, all of these elements had to be coordinated in order for that vibe to take shape. So that's really what I what I wanted to, to have. And you start layering and layering and layering and seeing, okay, we need to add this, we need to add this, we need to add this. And suddenly you've got this, it's like like an artist, when you're painting, you're creating something new out of nothing and you layer it and you layer it and you layer it and you pivot and you change and you add more color and you take away more color and so on. And you get to that end product, which becomes the final you know piece of work. Same thing with a restaurant or a gathering space. You start putting layers there that define who and what you are. Oh, that's really interesting. So then how did it feel then once your restaurant started to quite literally impact and transform neighborhoods? How did it feel to know that your concept and your creation was filling a, a necessary void that people in the city had had wanted? Well, you know, a lot of times ideas are born in one's head, obviously, and you start thinking in terms of how do I translate what's in my head to the canvas, to the space, to whatever it is that you're trying to show the world. And many times the translation is lost. Uh, you know, what, what's in your head doesn't necessarily translate correctly or in the way that you want it to, to the recipient of that information you're putting out. In the case of Busboys and Poets, I think I had done so much homework to get ready for it that I did a lot of my own focus groups, my own kind of vetting of ideas, my own way of, of sharing what I had in mind and getting input from community to make sure that it really does speak to the community that I'm trying to reach. So I spoke to community organizations, I spoke to nonprofit organizations, I spoke to local ANCs, to business associations, to homeowners associations, you name it, everybody that I thought was going to be my potential customer or someone that can, you know, be my potential ambassador or cheerleader, I wanted to make sure they understood what I was coming into and got input from them so that I can customize this space in such a way that makes them feel included. Mm -hmm. Now, could you help us understand what it was like to be in Washington, D.C. at that time? What was the time frame? What years? And what was the context of what it felt like to be in D.C. at that time? Well, Washington, D.C. Was, was going through a tremendous amount of change. That combined with the beginning of the Iraq War, I think made me really take a pause and say, like, we as Americans, uh, Washingtonians, are not that informed about not only the world, but even our own city. People moving into the city and really don't know what the city's about. They only know it as the White House and the Capitol and the Smithsonian, if that. And I wanted to, you know, portray D.C. in a different light, that D.C. is multifaceted. It's a political city for sure, but it's also an artistic city. It's also a ever-changing city. It was called Chocolate City for the long time, so it has a very strong black culture. Uh, so all these elements are oftentimes lost to people that are coming here from outside. And uh, so all of that combined with the fact that as Americans, we tend to be rather ignorant about the rest of the world. So Iraq, the Iraq war was heating up and very few people knew where Iraq was, let alone why we're going to war. 
So I wanted to to have a place that because I'm originally from Iraq, I, I it was it was very personal to me. So that was just an example. We've gone to many many wars and many many places where we've taken conflict across the globe to places that we had no idea what those places were if they ever existed before that day. And suddenly we know the capital, we know their food, their cuisine by invading them. You know, so I wanted I wanted a place that felt more authentic and more kind of Washington based. And frankly, I was getting tired that there wasn't places that people can go to here in DC that feel and look and taste like DC. I wanted a place that people that go to New York oftentimes know what they're going for. You know, this is so New York or people that go to New Orleans or people that go to San Francisco or LA even, they know the kind of places they're going to be encountering, but DC didn't have its own sense of identity in that way. Not certainly in places where you can like gather people. And so that was kind of like the interest behind all this is how can I create a place that feels so DC, that feels so authentic and started to unpack it and come up with this idea. And I wanted a place that I felt comfortable going to, the place that I wanted to be at, a place that not only has good food, but it, it feeds your, 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 your body, but also feeds your mind. It feeds your soul. It feeds your needs, you know, that of, of community, all of those things. You know, as I'm listening to you kind of talk about this, the thing that kind of comes up for me is wondering if there's, in some sense, you know, a modicum of truth to the idea of you trying to create a sense of home and belonging, not only for yourself, but for others who who need it, right? Given your background as an Iraqi American, coming here, immigrating to the United States, is there any truth to that idea of trying to find a sense of home and then creating it for others as well? Absolutely. I think that's true. I think as immigrants, we tend to come here and we're oftentimes hyphenated and we live on the hyphen. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's very hard for us to figure out which side to fall on. You know, you're an American and you're an Iraqi. You're not quite an American and you're not quite an Iraqi. And you end up in this kind of liminal space where you feel like, you don't belong anywhere. Now, that could be a bad thing because you're like in this no man's land, but it could also be a good thing because you may be pulling things from all these different elements of you to create this wonderful space. So anyway, I think there was an interest in me to belong. You know, I think as a a young kid coming to this country, I always felt like the outsider because I didn't feel like I belonged to any particular racial group or ethnic group or anything like that specifically. There wasn't enough Iraqi Americans here to be part of that tribe. So you end up in this very strange space. And to have a place that I felt like is welcoming. That's why our first line, our tribal statement is we are a place where racial and cultural connections are consciously uplifted. I wanted that conscious uplifting. When somebody walks in through the door, they can feel like I belong here, you know, immediately and not feel like I'm going to be left out. Now, a lot of it is, of course, is centered around African-American culture. But Black culture is American culture. It's not Black, it's American culture. That's what American culture is to most of the world. That's what American culture is to me. You know, if you ask people, who's the biggest star in in the United States and anywhere, in Japan, let's say, they'll tell you Beyonce, or they'll tell you someone like that. Well, she's Black. So a lot of American culture that is exported, that people recognize from outside, happens to be Black culture. And so that became my culture because I'm an American. So I incorporated a lot of black culture in there. And of course, you know, being 
in Washington, in Washington, D.C., being in Chocolate City, Black culture is, takes center stage. So I wanted to make sure that that took center stage at Busboys of Poets. Yeah. So let's take a step back and look at, look at the situation from a bird's eye view. Given your background, coming to the United States as a young person, how do you now understand what it means to be American given this current moment, given this really monumental year, this unprecedented year, and this unprecedented approach to this election and Black Lives Matter? How do you kind of think about what it means to be an American right now? Well, I mean, watching what's happening today, watching the protests and watching all these young people out in the street, suddenly I feel more American than I've ever felt. This is the country that I came to, a country of freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, all of these things. And those freedoms I see were being taken away, were deteriorating over the past, you know, few decades, frankly. And I wanted to see people talk about making things better, but oftentimes it's very hard to act on it. We're fat and comfortable in this country in many ways, right? And I think it took a lot of things to come together and align for this moment to take shape where people are standing up and saying, we could do better. We have a long ways to go. We've always thought of ourselves as being exceptional. We've always thought of ourselves as being this whole idea of manifest destiny. We are amazing. We are the number one in all this, but that's not true. When people travel all over the world, they see differences. They see that we're not all there. They see what happened with us with the coronavirus. We were terrible at how we responded to it. Our healthcare system is broken. And I think this was a wake-up call combined with many other things that happened that brought together this perfect storm that allowed people to go out on the street and say, no, we're not going to buy this anymore. We're not going to buy this bullshit. We're actually going to go and start speaking up and saying, we can do better. We can do much better than we've been doing. So let's unpack this idea of how we can fold this into Washington. How do you see Washington, D.C. as a place of change? Do you see it as an epicenter of change? Well, absolutely. I think the epicenter in terms of policy change and all that, but a lot of it is, is actually is not as centralized as one would like to think. The beauty of this, it is decentralized. So the epicenter is in Paris. The epicenter is in Auckland, New Zealand. The epicenter is in London. The epicenter is in Nairobi. I mean, there, there are epicenters everywhere. I don't want us to be so full of ourselves as say the epicenter is right here in Washington, D.C. Not necessarily. I think we have to think in terms of what can we do in our local communities to have an impact? And these local communities have ripple effects. You know, when a community does something, they do it better. It becomes best practice for others to do. So there's opportunities there. I don't want us to wait till one major epicenter makes it happen because, you know, that centralization is dangerous. And we want to be able to decentralize and make sure that all these communities are, are actually challenging one another to do better. They're actually, you know, in a, in a race to do better. And uh, I think when, when, when that happens, we all do better. Yeah, it reminds me of um, Tip O'Neill, who is the Speaker of the House. He once said that uh, all politics are local. And so as it pertains to all politics being local, I think this would be a great time to talk about how you decided to run for mayor of Washington, D.C. I mean, you were a successful restaurateur with restaurants all throughout the city. What made you want to change things up and run for mayor of Washington? 
Well, I was seeing that the city could do so much better. I, I think elections in Washington, D.C. tend to be kind of ho-hum. People just, you know, it's like, okay, somebody's just a little bit more to the left of the other person, you know, and somebody a little bit more to the right of the other person. There's not a lot of range in the politics that we have here in D.C. And yet the major issues, the issues that deal with systemic change, issues that deal with poverty, the issues that deal with racism are never brought up during these times because everybody's kind of in the same lane, you know, and they stay in that lane. And so I, I wanted to just shake it up a little bit. I wanted to say, no, we have some serious issues to deal with. We have racism to deal with. We have a huge amount of disparities, not only in our school system, our healthcare system, the way we do policing. I mean, the same things we're talking about right now. And I wanted to see those issues brought to the forefront. Those issues become part of the debate, part of the conversation that elected officials must be held to. And so I, I really came into it as an agitator, in a sense, uh, in the best sort of way, to say that we need to go beyond just, you know, the typical conversations and the niceties that we have been accustomed to when it comes to the way we elect our officials. It's not just about, you know, making sure you organize the party and get them all to go out and vote. It's not about just get the vote out. It's about what are you doing for me and why am I going to vote for you? Give me a reason, you know? My campaign was done out of Ward 8, uh, you know, east of the river. And I spent a lot of time there, knocked on many, many doors and uh, said hello to many, many people. I met many, many groups. I learned a lot about the city, about what people want, what people need. And it was a great experience. Mm -hmm. That's really curious. So, so then what did campaigning and running for mayor teach you internally and externally? How did that kind of change the way you thought about politics specifically? I learned a lot about the city. I learned a lot about its people. I learned a, a lot about what makes a city a healthy city, what, what makes a city not a healthy city. I learned a lot about how race plays a very significant role in our elections, as well as everything else that goes from there. There was a lot of learning that happened, certainly. I was, you know, my, was my first foray into politics, and I really took a crash course. I made it my business to learn everything. I wasn't just going to have two slogans and get up there and just, you know, repeat them over and over again. I was going to really understand the needs and what the city's about. So I did my homework. I studied really, really hard um, when I ran. So, yeah, I learned a lot. Now, as it pertains to the politics of Washington, D.C. right now, especially as it pertains to coming out of COVID and restaurants slowly opening up and the Black Lives Matter protests since May essentially taking over parts of the city. I think at one point I even read that some looters even broke a window of Busboy and Poets, one of the restaurants. How do you kind of think about that? Well, there was no particularly looting that happened at Busboys and Poets. We had a window broken, three bottles of liquor were taken. In the scheme of things, in the in the big picture, that's hardly a story. We had a broken, small broken window, actually, that took all of 30 minutes to fix. It really did. And the bigger story is we have a system that's been rigged and broken for over 400 years. And that's really the focus. It's not about our window. Somebody got mad. Who knows who it was? Threw something through the window. It was in the, in the heat of the moment. Maybe they were anarchists. Maybe they were you know, people that, that were up to no good. I have no idea. Maybe it was just somebody with a lot of passion. I have no idea who it was. But the fact of the matter is, we're fine. That's not the that's not the issue. The issue is the system. Are we going to make an impact? Are we going to make a change? 
And sometimes, unfortunately, uh, in, in, in history, I mean, we've seen it over and over again, power doesn't concede easily. You know what I mean? Sometimes you got to be noisy. Sometimes you got to be noisier. And that's how you get the attention. You know, if you're just nice and walking down the street and chanting, we shall overcome, it's not enough. At some point, it's not enough. Maybe in one era, it was enough. But now we have to increase the heat. Yeah, good. So help us understand what that means. What does turn up the heat mean? What does that look like? What's what's the next step? Where do we go from here? Well, the next step is unfolding right in front of us. These young people are doing it. You know, they're out in the street. They're holding the elected officials accountable. They're tweeting. They're Instagramming. They're texting. They're Snapchatting. They're WhatsApping. They're doing whatever it is that, that makes sense to connect with others. You know, I I don't profess to have the answers for the way forward. We dismissed the millennials for many, many years thinking, oh, these are just spoiled brats who really are, you know, all, all they think about is themselves. Who knew they were sitting fortifying, getting ready for that moment, you know, and then capturing it in such an amazing, beautiful way. So I see a lot of possibilities and I don't know what they are. I, I have no idea. I don't have a, a, a finger on the future, but I know that it's going to be better than we have. I know it's going to end up to be something more amazing. Uh, so I think that's really cool. That's very, very exciting. Mm-hmm. So as a pivotal member of the community here in Washington, D.C., and somebody who has experienced politics quite literally, what do you see your role being in this current moment? I'm going to stand in the back of the line. I'm going to let people lead. You know, I'm going to get out of the way. Uh, this is their turn. And I think there's, there's a lot of people that are doing it. A lot of people are doing really, really well. I'll make my voice heard when necessary. I will support. I will have my finger on the pulse. I will make sure that I am there. I'm an ally. I'm someone that is going to not get in the way. And I think that's the most important thing. I think especially for a business person, the most important thing we could do right now is not get in the way, is let things take shape and be able to be there to say, yes, we can do better. I also want to be questioning. I always want to be in in a position of curiosity, a position of always thinking we could do better. And if we can have always that kind of mindset, I think we will do better. Yeah, I think that's really great insight. So what I'd like to do right now, Andy, is kind of switch gears up and address something that you brought up in the beginning of this conversation. You brought up the idea of art and being an artist. So in your own words, can you kind of help us understand what is art in your definition and how does it kind of inform your worldview? Oh, uh, great question. Uh, You know, I think art uh, for me is really a way to express myself. Some people journal, some people sit and contemplate and meditate, whatever. I do art. For me, art is a way to express what's deep inside me, to bring it out so I can can understand it better. I can understand myself better through it. Art to me is also a way for, for me to express myself to others and let them know what's inside my heart, inside my mind. So the stuff that I put up, you know, the murals that I do with the restaurants, the paintings that I do are about, you know, interpreting the world as I see it. And um, sometimes those interpretations help others see the world differently. Uh, that's what art does. It opens up spaces within our soul, within our mind, that allow us to see the world in a different lens. And the wider our lens is, of course, the more uh, of, a, of a true sense of ourselves we create and we find. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. So the murals that you essentially have painted all over the city, 
and the restaurants in which you've built with beautiful artwork within them, how do you think your artwork has then transformed the city and has kind of affected the way people see each other and see themselves in this city? You know, I think people, when they see their idea or themselves or a thought they've had represented for them in a way, it validates them. It validates their humanity. It validates their, it validates their existence. And I think that validation is key for us to connect with one another as human beings. You know, art validates us, validates our thoughts, validates our deep feelings, uh, and puts them in terms that connects us to others. And when that connection happens is when you have that magic of community, the magic of coming together, the magic of being wickedly connected to one another in a way that I think uh, creates unpredictable opportunities for further growth, not only for ourselves, but for our community as well. Mm -hmm. And how do you think this moment will be captured through art? Well, art is going to interpret this moment. I mean, art is going to be, there'll be a lot of artists and there's always, there has been, you know, art is everywhere. Creativity is everywhere. These moments bring out so much, so much, because a lot of this stuff has been held inside of us, I think, for many, many years, in some cases, decades, some cases, centuries. And for it to just kind of be exposed and allowed to flourish, allowed to open, is really a pretty amazing thing. So art is, I mean, lots of art is going to come out of this moment, for sure. Just as art has come out in many different uh, moments of upheaval and change throughout history. So I, I, see, I see art is going to take a major step forward in how we're going to interpret this moment, how we're going to share this moment with, with many generations to come and with one another as we live through this incredibly magnificent uh, time in our history. Yeah, that's really great insight. As we kind of wrap things up here, how would you answer the question, what is your message for the world? Uh, this is an incredibly important time that we're living in historic. There are so many opportunities out there that could come out of this moment. I mean, we'll never go back to where we were, that's for sure. But we can go back closer to where we were, or we can go much further than where we were. I'd like us to go much further than where we were and be able to use this opportunity. Really think of it as an opportunity. A once in a generation, once in a lifetime, certainly this is a once in a lifetime experience. I mean, that perfect storm of the pandemic and the lockdown connected to the tragic death of, of an unarmed black man, another unarmed black man, to the presence of someone in the White House who has very little empathy and little regard for others, uh, coming together in one swirl created this spark that suddenly is heard and echoing throughout the globe. And that's really incredibly amazing. That has not happened. Uh, any time in the, certainly in the recent past or any time I remember, certainly. So I think that that is a uh, a moment that we should not let go. Our world is wide and wild and it's got so many opportunities in it. And I think we should capture all those elements of it and bring it together into an incredibly new formation of a future that we can all share in, that we can all be part of the way forward. So I, I think, you know, we're living in exciting times. I'm really thrilled to be alive today, I have to tell you. That's wonderful, Andy. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you for the work that you do. 
It's my pleasure. Take care. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.